A thank you to our sponsors, the For Us, By Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers, who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. Renee Johnson, thank you so much for coming outside, actually in my backyard, and spending time with us on In The Pocket. Um, you do a consultation business. You're on the main women's lobby. You also have a podcast. I know that you're an actor and a singer. Um, you're like the renaissance woman of Portland. So <laughs> please introduce yourself. Thank you so much. Yes, hi, y'all. Renee got us here. Um, oh gosh, how do I explain who I am? Let's start by saying I am here on Wabanaki territory. And that is important for me to say because I, as an indigenous South African woman, am really starting to sit in the understanding of my assimilation and trying to pay honor to all of my ancestors and living ancestors. So I'd like for us all to please start there. And if you have a libation with you, water, juice, or a spirit, or tea, I'd love to take this time with you and have a moment of silence as we enjoy a libation, a beverage, and pay homage and honor. Um, which I was, I didn't tell you I was gonna do this because I forgot that I now do this. It's like new in my practice, but trying really hard before I start spouting off who I am and having like my individual artistic conversation on Wabanaki territory, trying to really recognize that it is my job to set a standard for what decolonizing looks like in my body. So not just doing my practices at home, trying to bring those practices everywhere I go and set the standard outside of my house and feel comfortable setting the standard outside of my house. Yeah. So we'll take 10 seconds with our water. If you have a libation, and honor or just you don't have a libation have your own conversation about what decolonizing looks like for you and what anti-racism looks like for you time starts now Wow, we uh, don't usually have a lot of dead air on a podcast, but <laughs> with a good reason. And that makes me think about when I go to places and I hear people say minorities, I always like to correct them and say that it's actually marginalized people because people of color um, actually dominate uh <laughs> population-wise, the planet. So I feel like you were just trying to marginalize me when you use the word minority. Um, but I don't think you finished introducing yourself. So uh, we had our Wabanaki territory silence. And now 
Renee, Yay. please. Hi, y'all. So yes, I have a lot going on. I have Embodied Equity, which is rebranding. I've been Embodied Equity Consulting for the last four years, and we're rebranding a bit. The pandemic changed so much for everybody. <laughs> so now there's this online presence I have to have, and I'm an in-person, like embodied equity trainer and player. I love being right next to people. So we're really deciding like what is the online work and what is the in-person work and finding a shift there. So embodied equity is who I am, what I do, and also how you can find us um, pretty much anywhere on Instagram and all of those places, but we'll get to that later. Uh, the other thing I have is Melanin in Maine, which is a podcast for us. I think of who I was when I first came to the United States and what assimilation felt like. And this podcast for me is an opportunity to do the things I wish I had had. Stories from people who look like me, talking about the things that are joyful and tragic so that I knew somebody got through it and I could get to the other end. Uh, I grew up here very lonely um, and a warning for those of you, just a warning coming up with some content with suicidal ideation because of what was happening here. So, and I work with a lot of young people across the state. So this was another way for me to reach the young people who I work with in Jay or Presque Isle, who are children of color in families where they have no choices about where they're gonna live or who's buying their groceries necessarily, to let them know also, you're not alone. So there's Melanin in Maine. Um, and then the other work that I do um, I mean, there's the theater work that I do. <laughs> so right now I'm working with D. Clark and we have a commission with Portland Ovations coming up May 11th. And I love the work I do with D. Embodied Equity is about garnering empowerment, specifically economic empowerment, and really looking at the space of disenfranchisement. Like, what is that in our bodies? How are we, how are we daily living the things that have happened to us? How are we perpetuating it in our families, with our friends, in our relationships, and continuing to let white terrorism empower way too much <laughs> and too many choices? I think of all the spaces in me that are just learning how to like love the choices I make, and it's because of the work with Embodied Equity and working with women like Dee to be able to sit together. Our stories are very different, but the version of being a person of color feels really similar, no matter here or when I go to Oakland or when I'm in Vermont. So embodied equity is that empowerment of like saying, we have skills that a lot of us don't even know we have names for. We think we are less than, we think we don't deserve, we think we shouldn't have, because we don't have the words for the powers that we are. We don't have the words for the things we've actually accomplished. And getting to do the work with embodied and then working with women like Dee, to see that story become a, like a powerful now three act play that took two years to put together. It's like my little person could never have imagined that I would have all of these resources and all of these people in my life to build the community of black, brown, indigenous like powerhouses that we have. Right, awesome. So I know you said Dee Clark, um, what is the business that she runs? It's about empowering women as well, I think like sex workers or something yeah so sexploitation is a term that d created and she's known for and we don't really say exploitation because sexploitation um encompasses so much more of what's actually happening survivors speak usa is her organization Thank you. 
and they've been around for about eight years. So they specifically help empower women and girls who've been sexploited, exploited, human trafficked, or involved in child trafficking. So I assume that three-act play has something to do with that. It is her autobiographical three-act play about being kidnapped at 12 years old, being in the life until her early 20s, moving to Maine, and then how she became an advocate. Ah, it's so interesting, being in the life, being a, a black queer person, I feel like being in the life would be something that you would say that you were like, I'm queer to other black yeah. queer people. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm in the life. So it's funny that that's also for, I'm into sexploitation, not by choice, but. Yeah, totally, okay. totally. The life. And one of the things that specifically Survivor Speaks, Survivor Speak doesn't use, they don't use sex worker as a term for the community they're building. And D, like, the way she said it to me was like, do you do you get a 401k? Do you have HR? Do you, are you going to something like, and there are lots of terms for different people, but she specifically doesn't use the term sex work within her organization because she doesn't feel like it is what is happening to them. Mm -hmm. They don't have choices in what's happening in their lives in those ways. And so calling it work just doesn't feel like it fits in her body, which was really helpful for me because I've always called it sex work. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, well, there are people who call it sex work. I have friends who call it sex work. I have friends who are in that life who call themselves sex workers. So really understanding nothing is wrong, that every survivor has a chance to, to name their own. Mm -hmm. And I guess the other part of why D comes up for me is I didn't know I was a last girl, which is the specific space, black, brown, indigenous, queer, and young is the last girl. They are the most exploited person globally, globally. And before doing this play, I didn't know I was a last girl. And then working with Dee, and this is why this work is so important, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> I didn't even know this was something that was in my body. So to get to do the work with embodied equity and find out even more about myself, delicious it's like it's been a heck of a year this pandemic <laughs> yeah well it sounds like it's been like overall a good year you were saying to me that you're like an introvert so the pandemic has been i would say you know being an introvert myself a blessing yes a heck of a blessing i've spent so much less time worrying about needing to be in other people's places and spaces and energies and i'm an empath i've always known that but the pandemic really helped me, it helped me detach enough that I could understand how sensitive I am. I didn't know how sensitive I was before the pandemic. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like I knew I was emotional, you know, I knew I was like, I'm a crier, that's who I am. But I didn't, I really didn't understand how sensitive my body, my space, my energy, once the pandemic happened and I got to release a lot of energies as a black woman, as a child who was on the street young, as someone who had to take care of myself, I've been going since I was 11. I've been creating this version of safety, so to speak, for myself, only to understand it's really a big character on this tiny little, quiet little, simple space, time, space. But like I was saying to you, assimilation really forced a lot of big traits out of me that are totally me but totally not what I think I would have chosen. And so with the pandemic, I'm getting to kind of be me more, and it's nice. I'm calling her Chill Renee. <laughs> what's, what's she being called? Chill Renee. Chill Renee, oh, when I thought it was- When work is done, something we go into Chill Renee. There you go. When the phone call is off, it's Chill Renee. Yes. You know, like really setting consumerism to the side, like making a solid commitment to myself, 
that consumerism is not the functioning system for my epigenetic code. Well, wait, consumerism and being like extra outgoing, are those the same things? No, um, I, they're not the same thing. The, the extroverted quality, the, I think of it this way, like we love celebrities in the United States, right? We are obsessed with celebrities. And I think of extrovertedness as a tool for consumerism and a tool for marketing and a tool for selling, really, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a shy, quiet person in the United States, it's hard for you to sell your product. Right, go kick rocks. <laughs> yeah. And so if you, wanna, if you want people to feel safe around you, if you want people to feel like at ease or any of those, the way to do it is to be an extroverted person, to have this air, this ease about you, this gracefulness, whether male or female, because we love graceful males, mm -hmm. right? And then people want to buy the thing you have. And when you're a kid coming from the South African mindset of black is beautiful, black is brilliant, black is excellence, black is family, black is pride. And you move to the United States at six and black is not that because that's not, we're a consumerist nation. You learn, I learned, I assimilated into what made the most sense for this culture. And that was big, loud, sweet, and I'm small, framed. So that's helpful to me. If I were taller, it would be different. There were all of these assets that I had and, be, and got to figure out very quickly. Do these things and people will think you're okay and you're safe. And so now I'm undoing that 30 year pattern. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I, I kind of grew up maybe, I think they call it being like anti-social or anti-authoritarian mm -hmm. um, because I did all those things that did not make people feel safe. <laughs> and I always had dark humor, but I always admired people who were able to assimilate in a way that brought other people to them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it's a fun it's a fun skill. It's it's nice to be able to be able to make friends anywhere I go, you know, if I want to. But I'm having a really hard time learning how to just sit and be quiet in a room again. And so that's like a fun challenge of being like, I like being quiet. Like, hey, you don't want to be talking right now. Mm. You can you can you can be quiet in this room and trying to do that and saying it in the rooms that I'm at where people who know me and they're like, she's really not going to talk and seeing the difference in like what that what that makes people feel it's very it's been a good shift it's forced my friends and my family to really have to understand me because <laughs> they're used to me being this big loud entity and the quiet of the pandemic has been delicious so delicious awesome yeah sometimes i feel like the bigness is another guard where you don't really get a chance to delve into people mm -hmm. um so it's nice that you have acknowledged that thank you yeah thank you. yeah so and i don't really think of like south africa as being like pro-black only because i know they like modeled their um racism after the united states so i figured they were just <laughs> just like us yeah so the system itself is hella racist super xenophobic the difference the major difference between what happened here in the United States and the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, when black, when black Africans came here, they were wiped. They really were wiped of everything that belonged to them. So although South Africa was racist, we weren't wiped of who we are and our tradition and where we come from and 
My grandmother made everything we wore by hand till she died. Everything we ate, she grew. She, you know, ground our own grain. All of those things were still part of just my childhood. So there's a pride in understanding where you come from, knowing your lineage. She would say things like, eh, René, you come from the stars. And when you're a kid, you don't understand what that means. Now I'm a scientist and I know I have more in common, more in common with mushrooms and the stardust than I do with an ape. And you see the way that like history really finds its way through story. And for my, my, my people to know who they are, to know where we come from and really build that pride in me way before I could speak. So that by the time I opened my mouth, I could advocate for myself. I could say yes, I could say no, I could ask questions and nobody told me I was stupid or told me to shut up or said no. It was like, they gave me an answer or sweetie, ask me when you're nine. You're not old enough for that. There was an understanding that information, this is my favorite thing about the work I do, and one of my favorite quotes, information in the United States is ammunition. It's just the way it works. And so I come from a culture where ammunition is not a thing. Information is information. It's so you can make choices. And having that difference, I think that's where I see that space of just like knowing, knowing where I come from. Maybe not always understanding it, but having the foundation. Great. Yeah. Uh, knowledge is power. That's what I've heard. I haven't heard of the information as ammunition, but it can be. Um, anything can be ammunition if it's used against you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we don't, even like paper trail. I remember when I went back to visit South Africa when I was 15, and it hit me how much paper, how much account we have the way we keep, there's no credit system in South Africa. So there's no need to keep that kind of a system where you have, you might get audited. So you have to keep this for this many years, just in case. That's a ton of power for a slip of paper. (laughs) So it's like those sorts of systems realizing like, oh, information is so many beautiful things. And it can also be a lot of things that are harmful and toxic, AKA, hello, where we are. Yeah. You know, uh, when I hear about the systems of paper, I always think of like the Romans and they were like really big on writing things down. Um, I think the Sumerians were probably the other big writers before the Romans, but that is definitely how the United States, I feel like, resembles itself with the way they want to keep law written. But what else do you have going on? So is the play going to be available for online consumption or in-person consumption you said in may yeah may 11th portland ovations is hosting from four to five for specifically it's called the last girl that's a free show so anybody can register for it online um and we have a pre-recorded um section so it's act three scenes one two and three so it's 30 minutes worth of the play and then we have a 30 minute audience talk back and it's mostly for the audience to help Dean move into the next phase of the play. The third act is the part that needs the most work right now. Act one and two, we've spent the last two and a half years just, it's ooh, so solid. Mm-hmm. And act three, we have story, story building, character building. We need feedback. We need to know where we are. And so the hope is on May 11th that people come in, they watch, and they let us know what they see so Dee can go back to writing and get back into finishing act three. 
Is that a, a common thing for plays? To do workshop, yeah. So most plays, you know, you get the, the playwright writes it, and then they do workshops and workshop productions. And it can be the whole thing or in different sections depending on what you're looking for. Most, most people I know will do things in sections. When I do my plays, it'll be act one, act two, act three, and really work it out. And so you see lots, lots of little tiny audiences before the big thing is done. A story is very hard to build in small pieces. So it's good to go along the way every you know 10 to 20 minutes. Three minutes on stage, I can, I can, it can take me four to seven months to work on just three minutes of one play to make sure the dialogue makes sense. So some plays, you know, can, the process of it, we've been what, writing for three years. And she started before we did. She had already, um, which was testimony she gave. When Maine failed, they got an F from the Polaris group in 2012, I think. Um, they got an F in human trafficking and sex trafficking. And she was one of the people who te gave testimony as to what's going on and how this process is happening. And she used that testimony to start the play. So that's act one and two. Yeah. Nice. And so I assume that if it takes so long to write just minutes in a play that you are working on multiple plays? It depends on the artist. Um, for someone like myself who's a one-woman show kind of person, not generally. I might be working on like poetry or I might be doing some choreography, but if I'm writing a, a, a play, I'm writing that play for a while. The one, my one-woman show, it's been seven years and it's still not finished. It changes <laughs> with every new audience. And then there are groups where when you have six people in a group, you can produce a lot of work really quickly. The six of you can get together for a weekend and put a lot of work down because you're moving, you're playing, you're asking questions. So it just kind of depends on the process of the artist specifically, but most plays within a year to two is that first base of getting the, the, the on the ground, getting the baseline of the play. And then there's another year or so of workshopping, um, table work, which is when actors just come, we read, we ask each other questions, we play. All of that happens way before anybody sees the whole thing. We get to do the whole thing next year. We've been commissioned by Portland Ovations to read the entire play in 2022. When you say read the entire play, is it actually gonna be like performed? Just or? read, people okay. will be at um, music stands with binders and we will read the play through way before it becomes a production. Those are, yeah. And table, have you never been to a table read? I'll take it then. Or you've never been to a reading? I've been in a place where people were reading lines from a play. Yes. But you've never been to like a cast show produ production of like people standing there reading a play? No. Oh, it's I, No, I would it's fall beautiful. asleep. Yeah, no. I would, yes. Maybe. Maybe. Because I'm a, well, I'm a movie the... person. Okay. So like, if there's no like theater action, at all? I do like theater. I like um, Hamilton. I've seen that. Yes. Um, that's probably the only thing that really comes to mind. Okay. Off okay. Top of my head, but well, I'll no. think of inviting you to a couple table readings. Readings can be really exciting because although there isn't necessarily like a show happening, we're we're still actors, right? So we're our face, our voice, everything. There's still inflection. Sometimes there might even be costuming. Sometimes there's music, depending on the play. So it's still a show. It just isn't a bunch of people running around a stage. Right. Yeah. Right. And there isn't like, um, the stage doesn't have any setup. Probably no set. Right. No um, set. Light show. There might be a light, you know, oh. make, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. If yeah. I did a reading, there's definitely light changes and, cause you still want the moods. The hope is, is to get the audience to be picturing it themselves. 
the hope at this point when you're doing a reading is that the audience is like, oh, I can see. So you're giving them color, you're giving them sound and context, and you're hoping that they're making picture so that when they speak to you, you know if what you've put on the paper is real. That's the hope for readings. They really are about the audience bringing their personal expertise and story to imagine what might be happening. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, I kind of wanted to dovetail back to Embody Equity consul Consulting. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that you were in the process of doing some online stuff? Yeah. Um, so I am, I've learned some great lessons this year about what my capacity is and how to show up. And I'm realizing I don't want to show up in person at all. Not really at all. So I'm making most of my workshops and trainings now into a digital platform and really getting clear about when I show up in person and that those are like very specified occasions. So I'm transitioning specifically my 13 week training, um, which is the Embodied Equity Roundtables training. And that's for the white supremacy culture training for white folks specifically. All of my work for white folks is going online. I am no longer showing up in person for white people. I just can't, it's too dangerous. All the work that I've done, I'm realizing over and over, no matter how well I set the stage for vulnerability and the ability to work through things, whiteness doesn't understand itself just enough that it's dangerous for me to show up into these rooms. So. There's now an online platform and you can sign up for a 13 week course. You could do a weekend intensive. You can do a week long intensive. Um, and the 13 weeks is the beginning of a two year program that I'm calling or coining for a white broker. If you want to be a white broker, which I am defining as a trauma informed, trauma informed white caregiver. And this is someone who has spent time understanding specifically white emotional labor because that is what we as people of color do all the time we're constantly wielding white emotional labor and flawlessly white people don't have to hold it they don't have to juggle it they don't have to stress over it because we get things like it's so hard to talk about race no sweetie why do i have to hold this emotional racial emotional labor and you don't have to hold this racial emotional labor so the platform my work is going into now is to really help white people understand that there is a way for them to get more confident holding that racial emotional labor. So when they are in a room, they can make a choice for me. They can say like, oh, I know we, we probably want Renee to show up for that thing, but do we have an honorarium before we send her an email? I want somebody to feel confident. What's an honorarium? <laughs> an honor, a stipend, a check, money. Okay. <laughs> right, <laughs> Before right. you call me and say, you know, and that's why I have white brokers that work for me now. And that's how the t term kind of came about. I had white women who were in rooms where I wasn't and they saw how people were exploiting me. And they said, no, I'm good. That's not gonna work for me. I'm gonna speak for this person. And it helped me understand like, oh, I can say that to them a million times over, but it was so helpful to not get that email, mm -hmm. right? So now I'm, I have this two-year system where we're building the space for confidence and being able to speak in a room for a person of color, hopefully because you're having relationships with people of color. So it's a two-year program helping white people understand true relationship building with joy and equity. Not, you know, I'm not here to, cons um, to scold, 
I'm not here to yell at people. I'm not here to make you feel bad. I'm not here to like, no, no, my life is amazing. And I have to deal with this all the time. So I want you to understand the joy I have in this. I want you to have joy in this. And then the same program exists for black folk, black, brown, indigenous folk, but it's a switch. We're not teaching them how to deal with racial emotional labor. We are giving them context, vocabulary, and space to understand the racial emotional labor they are living every day. So when they go into an appointment, into a meeting, into a contract agreement, they have the confidence to say, nope, sorry, my price is twice that. But thank you so much for the offer. I really appreciate it that I know that you're around. I'll let anybody know, you know so all of the spaces in between. So that's the core of the work that's happening there now. Awesome, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, a two-year program that's like an associate's degree. <laughs> yes, 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 right? It's like I'm working with the intellectual space, but really helping the body. I love the brain. I love my brain. My brain is magic. But if it wasn't for my body, where would my brain be? So really taking into account that intellectualism is a beautiful thing, and we all should feel like happy that we can use our brains. But our heart, <laughs> like that, that is the place I really, really want to start. And I, hopefully, actually thinking about my heart, that brings me to melanin, which is our tiny house. That's the hope is like bringing my, Wait, my work. That tiny house is called melanin? My tiny house is called melanin. Okay. <laughs> so when you see melanin in Maine, that is a blog. Oh, no, that's the podcast. It's not about the tiny house. It's both. Okay. The dream is to be recording melanin in Maine while living in melanin. Okay. Living in Maine. Okay. Right. <laughs> but we're at ground zero. Yeah, ground okay. zero, right. so to speak. Good, good. It's like all of the spaces of recognizing, like, that's the heart of the work is for me to be happy. How am I building the life that allows me to make the most amount of income I can on my work, right? My intellectual property. I've created so much work over the last decade and a half, and I keep creating more work. I'm like, why am I so tired? It's like, oh, no. How can I make money off of what already exists? It's super powerful. And the tiny house is the shell for that. It's the first time I was like, oh, I, I'm not a nomad. I, I actually do want a home. I want somewhere to go and be and like live that's mine. And the pandemic, that would, <laughs> my partner and I were gonna move to California and have fun. And the pandemic came and we we're like, are we gonna, are we gonna build a life together? <laughs> Is that happening now? And it was like, I guess we are. And poof, we purchased melanin the shell for melanin. And hopefully this summer and spring, oh, we will be working on it nice. and getting it ready to move into this winter. Are you handy at all? I can learn anything. That's a no. <laughs> You're like, not really. But I've already told my partner, I am a manager, I am an organizer, I can get all the right people here at the right time and make sure they're fed and paid. That I can do. So yeah. I'll be more of the managerial. I'll pick up a hammer here and there. I'm sure I'll paint a thing here or there. But mostly I'm really looking to bring the right people together to do the thing that we need in a short amount of time. And that's mostly what it is, is I don't want to rush it, but I'd prefer to bring the expertise in because we're just going to build the shell. I need to be able to be naked in my house in the winter. All I need is the shell. I don't need much. We're gonna build it slowly but surely. The closet's thin. Let me just give me a good shell. Right, yeah, you need insulation mm -hmm. and heat. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. I assume running water. Yeah. You know, like I want to shower in my house. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, like that's get me my absolute basics for my winter. Yeah. And that's all I need. That's all I need. That's Good. what we're hoping for. Good. Well, I hope that happens. Is there anything else you want people to know about? Um. I don't know. I just that keep looking out for me. Um, I'm awesome. <laughs> I do great work, and I'm really excited about the journeys that I'm able to bring other people on. I, I'm just starting to understand how cool my work is and how profound my work is, and it's really fun to be like, oh, I want, I want to give these resources. I want to be, I want to be a gatekeeper who just shells out resources and figure out what like, what this feels like, how good this feels. So. Please come around, stick in. If you're a black, brown, indigenous, please come hang out. Find me. <laughs> Speaking of which, Renee, thank you so much. What's the plug? How can people reach you? Yes. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Embodied Equity Online, embodiedequity.online. That's my main Instagram. Also, Melanin in Maine has an Instagram page, which is Melanin in Maine. You can also find us financially if you want to support our work. The Embodied Equity Play Tools is still working, it's growing, um, and on Patreon. I have a Patreon where you can find the Embodied Equity Play Tools, and you can give there monthly and see the work that's happening and how many people are being affected by it on a pretty regular basis. Also, Renee Goddess on Venmo, Renee Goddess on Cash App. Um, Yeah, I think that's everything. Awesome. And Renee is spelled R-E-N-E. Yep. With a little accent aigu on that second E. So like in the Venmo, you have to put that little thing on there as exu? Oh, actually, well, no, when you're searching for my name, accent aigu, that's how it'll come up. But on the Venmo, there's no accent aigu. Okay. No. So you don't have, true. you just, it's the R-E-N-E. R-E-N-E and then G-O-D-D-E-S-S. Renee Goddess, you should be able to find me on all platforms. Perfect. Just in case people can't spell. R-E-N-E-G-O-D-D-E-S-S. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at inthepocket.fm and give us a follow so you never miss a show. A thank you to our sponsors, the For Us, Buy Us Fund, which supports Black, Brown, Indigenous, and people of color living their best life in Maine.